0: Welcome to Office Hours with EAB. On today's episode, EAB's Caitlin Maloney and Jackson Nell take a closer look at the federal spending bill that was passed in December and the impact it may have on higher education. The good news is that this was a substantially better package for higher education than the CARES Act, offering more money and greater spending flexibility for institutions with the greatest need. Caitlin and Jackson will discuss how different types of institutions might spend or invest the new federal dollars. They also talk about what we might expect under the Biden administration while urging all of us to prepare for incremental progress rather than transformational change. Thank you for listening and welcome once again to Office Hours with EAB.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to Office Hours at EAB. This is Caitlin Maloney, a senior director in our research division at EAB. Uh, This is my first Office Hours appearance in 2021. So happy new year to all of our listeners. I'm excited to be joined today by my close colleague, Jackson Nell, a senior analyst on our research team. Hi Jackson, how are you doing today?
2: Doing well, Caitlin. Thank you so much for having me on today and and really looking forward to talking about all the nuts and bolts of federal policy these days. It's certainly a fun field, and I'm sure it'll be a great conversation.
1: Yeah. In addition to being teammates, Jackson and I are are kind of neighbors in uh, Washington, Mm -hmm. D.C. We live just a few blocks from each other, so um, in our our downtime, we like to have these policy and government-type conversations. Um, and we in the months leading up to the new year we're anxiously anticipating the release of a new federal relief package honestly it feels like ages ago now as all eyes are on inauguration and some of the activity leading up to it but um wanted to spend our time today thinking back to the the legislation that was passed right before the new year and how it might affect higher education institutions I Jackson, I did a podcast for Office Hours last, gosh, April, May, around the CARES Act, the first mm-hmm. big COVID relief package uh, with relief for higher education institutions. CARES, the CARES Act became a, a common part of the higher education lingo by the end of 2020. This new package, I, I keep calling it the new federal relief yep. bill. Is there a catchier name? Is there a, an official name? I guess I'll, I'll throw you a softball question to start. <laughs>
2: Happy to start with uh, name and terminology on this one, as it's kind of a mess. You know, one of the reasons why is Congress, uh, you know, packaged a bunch of bills together uh, at the end of the year and passed an omnibus. So basically all of the, the spending bills for the fiscal year. So the full true official title of this is uh, the Consolidation Appropriations Act of uh 2021. So really, really nothing there that's catchy like CARES. Um, but the emergency appropriation, so those funds that we're going to go to higher education institutions, are, are part of the coronavirus response. And Relief Supplemental Appropriations Act, or SERSA. So I think we should be calling this SERSA. Uh, that kind of sounds like a you know a Game of Thrones character or some sort of <laughs> Greek god, but uh, that really is the the best term. I think you will also hear some folks within higher ed talk about uh, HERF two, so the Higher Education Emergency Relief Fund, the second allocation. Uh, so that might be kind of a, another space that you see both the Department of Education use and folks uh, within the industry.
1: Okay, CARES SERSA. Two. Yep. Got it. Thank you for straightening that out for me. It's something I've really been struggling to articulate succinctly in emails and in my uh, verbal communications. Too. <laughs> Now I know, as we were talking in the last months of 2020, you were constantly moder- monitoring policy Twitter, as you've referred to it. Yes. Um, looking for updates on this, you were ready to analyze this, and your full analysis of this new relief package, CERSA is up on eab.com. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if you can give us the the top line headlines here. Yeah. Um, what What is this new relief package, and what will it mean for the higher education institution at that headline level?
2: Absolutely. Well, at a high level, it's far later than many of us had hoped. Uh, I know you and I had been talking about maybe back in August that there could be something coming down the way, or maybe before the election, or right after it. Well, it turns out we had to wait to the end of the year, and Congress did what it always tends to do and procrastinate. But um, at the end of the year, we did finally get uh, some additional money coming out, and that uh, dollar amount comes out to about 22.7 billion dollars authorized exclusively for higher education institutions. So, uh, 22.7 billion is going to go into the higher education emergency relief fund. Um, That fund is then broken up into kind of four distinct pieces that I'll I'll top line briefly. At the top level is about $20.2 billion that's going to be awarded out in a funding formula that's Pell-weighted. It's a six-part formula. And that's for every public or nonprofit institution. So lots of schools in that bucket, it's about uh, 2,300 or so, will be eligible for that aid and will receive it through that uh, funding formula allocation. The second pot of money is about $680 million. uh, Because for-profits are not part of the institutional allocation uh, this round, this is a big improvement on the CARES Act, Um, they still have money set aside by Congress for aid to their students as emergency financial aid, Uh, so that's set aside there. The third bucket of money is uh, about uh, $1.7 billion that's going to go out in additional Title III, Title V, and Title VII aid. So this is supplementary aid for HBCUs, minority-serving institutions, tribally-controlled colleges and universities. Uh, those categories of schools are going to get more money on top of that $20.2 billion that they would get through the formula. So a lot there. And then there's a fourth little bucket, which you know, is $113 million. And when you think about it, well, that seems like a really small amount of money compared to those other pools, uh, but still a lot You know, when you think about $113 million. That's set aside for uh, institutions with significant unmet need, but really targeted at independent graduate serving institutions who are not going to get a, a significant amount of funding through that uh, pell weighted formula. So uh, that's kind of the, the big landscape uh, to think about those dollar amounts and what it means coming down the pike for colleges and universities.
1: Mm-hmm. That's great. And I you know that was a lot of numbers that you just modeled mm-hmm. off. We will yes. include your full analysis with all of these details mm-hmm. in our show notes on eav.com. You had mentioned um, one distinction between the CARES Act and this mm. new act uh, for profit exclusion. I'm sure a lot of our listeners, particularly presidents and um, those yep. that work in business and finance and enrollment management, are quite familiar with some of the, the details and the restrictions on CARES Act funding. Yeah. Um, it impacted a lot of their their financial strategy and um, enrollment management strategy in, in 2020. I'm curious, what are some of the other big differences between this package and uh, the CARES Act of 2020?
2: Great question. Well, at a high level, you know, Congress kind of copied and pasted a lot of things over from the CARES Act, right. so the funding categories are, you know, more or less the same. But they made some big tweaks. Uh, I think the biggest one to call out is on the funding formula itself, um, which is now going to include. Uh, full-time and part-time students. So the CARES Act was a two-part formula that only saw or or accounted for full-time students. So that really disadvantaged community colleges in particular, where about 67% of their enrollment is part-time. So those students were invisible to the formula. And so therefore, they didn't get their rightful share of the aid. That is better adjusted this time around because of that that new weighting. Uh, Another big difference here is, as I mentioned, is is that there are some exclusions. The for-profits are out of that. So that removes about 720 institutions from the the funding formula, the the advantage here is that that leaves a lot more money left over for publics and nonprofits. In the original CARES Act, uh, for-profits actually received quite a a substantial share of the funding because they tend to serve large Pell-eligible students um, and and populations. And so their removal from that and and their exclusion from institutional aid leaves more money for the the nonprofits and publics out there. Um, The other thing is there's this uh, kind of wealth tax imposed on on institutions with very large endowments. So uh, schools, we're talking about the Harvards of the world, the Princeton's of the world that have large endowments, they will not have uh, the same share that they would receive through the funding formula. Their their allocations cut by half. um, So that leaves even more money left over for uh, the schools that really need it, the the schools that don't have those large endowments. Um, Finally, I think the other really big change to call out here is is on the uses. Uh, I think a lot of us spent, you know, the spring thinking about what some of those use cases were for the CARES Act. And if you recall, for the folks on the line who know, we were all trying to figure out what the shift to emergency remote instruction made eligible for expenses, because that's the statutory language that Congress and Ed used. Well, now that that language is much broader this time around, it's really preparing and responding to the, the coronavirus pandemic. So a lot more things are bucketed under that this round. Um, that includes providing student support services, uh, so things related to recruitment or assuming retention. Uh, um, and student success during the pandemic but also now allows schools to reimburse themselves for lost revenue through these dollars so i think that that will be a huge change that will help shore up some institutional finances as well so good news across the boards so i think the tweaks made are they're not perfect by any means but uh, a much better iteration on the original cares act for schools uh, and particularly presidents and cfos
1: mm-hmm. And so you mentioned the wealth tax exclusion, a Mm -hmm. dedicated pot for HBCUs, MSIs, some other types of institutions. Help me read between the lines a little bit more. What types of institutions or types of students was this this relief package most intended to help? Was there there motivations there or certain types of institutions or institutional needs that um, the government and the legislature were, were specifically interested in helping?
2: Yeah, Congress really is focusing on helping students with the greatest need, and they interpreted that kind of crudely. But they they use the Pell eligibility as their kind of criteria to think about that. So students who are Pell eligible also have the greatest uh, financial need as a result. So uh, that's kind of their their target of providing the dollars out. So schools that uh, historically serve large Pell eligible populations, these tend to be uh, public systems, regional publics, even flagship publics uh, will will benefit uh, substantially from that. And their students, because part of this is gonna go out in emergency financial aid to those students as well this round. Community colleges, as I mentioned, are also big recipients of that because of that part-time calculation. Um, And they also serve a substantial amount of Pell and and needy students. So uh, those two, I think, are the the biggest schools that are going to benefit. That doesn't mean that regional privates will not be getting substantial money. I think if you run the calculations at kind of a preliminary level, most schools are going to end up with more money this time around than they did in the CARES Act. So still good news amount. But the the skew of the amount will be a little bit more concentrated to those schools that I mentioned earlier. That makes sense.
1: Well, that's good news that most schools are going to receive something and and mm-hmm. for many schools, it'll be more than they received for the CARES Act. How do you expect most institutions to use this funding? I guess first, yeah. what are the restrictions on the, the, the use of these funds? Are they consistent with the CARES Act restrictions?
2: Yeah, you know, the restrictions are, are the same. Uh, you know, pre-recruitment uh, marketing activities are excluded again, some capital projects tied to athletics or sectarian instruction or religious instruction are as well. Uh, so that bucket of categories is, is more or less the same. Um, But the uses, again, as I mentioned, are far broader. they're they're more generalized to the fact that the pandemic really has impacted a host of things. We're not just talking about in the spring that campus is only gonna be closed for some time. It's really to respond to this new normal that the the pandemic has created for higher ed of hybrid learning, distance learning, students not all on campus at once, all of those things. So use-wise there, again, I think that the inclination a lot of schools will have is to look at that uh, replacing lost revenue uh, component because uh, I think the vast majority of institutions can probably cite uh, examples of where they've experienced declines in revenues year over year, uh, particularly in the auxiliary enterprise. So, uh, that could be a space that helps them shore up their finances quicker without having kind of the same limited uses that the, the federal dollars would have otherwise. So, I expect a, a tremendous amount of interest. But outside of that, I kind of think there are three archetype institutions, if you will, on how they'll approach the, the, the funding. I think the first is we've already spent it. So, these are the schools that, you know, basically are saying that the money is too small and too late, uh, you know, to reopen safely for the fall. We had to take out a tremendous amount of money, uh, max out our credit cards, so to speak, to pay for testing, to pay for PPE, for sanitation. Um, So to that extent, the the dollars are already spent. We're going to reimburse ourselves, maybe pay down our short-term credit um, so we can kind of keep the lights on. So that's one category of schools. The second category, I think, are schools that, you know, they don't have a strategic reserve. A lot of schools have had to deploy those funds uh, to kind of meet the shortfalls in the added expenses due to the pandemic. So some schools are going to hold this back a little bit. And Say, you know, we need to hedge against any risk that happens this semester. We don't necessarily know where enrollment falls out. We don't know necessarily what unforeseen events and expenses are going to arise. So let's hold on to this as long as we can and maybe pay out some of these small expenses as they arise. So we have that flexibility. And then the third camp of schools, I think, is, you know, maybe not as directly materially impacted by the pandemic so far. Their finances are still in relatively good shape. No, they're not great. No one's is, I think, at this stage. But they're going to try and see if there's anything more proactive, right? You know, can we invest in something that's going to have a longer-term shelf life or ROI instead of buying, you know, PPE that we literally throw away? Not that that's not important, but is there something else with these one-time, maybe once-in-a-generational grant coming down from the federal government to do something more strategic? And a lot of that focuses on. Some and technology investments uh, that are going to position that institution to both have greater resilience in the next six months and over the year, but also thinking about how they can be more effective and efficient uh, when the pandemic hopefully uh, ends and we return to some sense of normal. So I think those are largely where the schools fall out. But but you know institutional finance is far better than I do uh, on that front. So I think you could assess uh, to how far the dollars will go.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. I'm I'm thinking as you're describing that, that I'm sure all institutions would want to use some of those money for all three of the purposes that you just decided. Some for reimbursement, some for saving for for a rainy day or unforeseen new expenses, some for strategic investments. It'll all come down to prioritization. To that end, I'm familiar with the CARES Act and had said on this podcast that, hey, look, this this is only going to be a dent in the institutional yep. financial need. It is by no means going to make institutions whole. How do you assess the impact of this one? Is it closer to making schools whole or is it still, you know, some help? it's better than nothing, but yep. schools are still going to have hard decisions to make in the months
2: ahead. Yeah, you know, there's certainly more money this time than in the CARES Act. So CARES was only you know 14 billion dollars for higher education. Here we're talking 23, so a, a big improvement. And in total, that you know gets us closer to 37 or so billion dollars. Uh, but when you look at the impact on the industry as a whole due to the pandemic, you know the ACEs of the world have that estimate at 120 billion dollars plus in lost revenue and added expenses. So even 23 billion dollars looks pretty small compared to that 120 billion. I think it's important though is that it's not a monolithic. There are institutions in different financial circumstances. There were pre-pandemic too. So depending Mm -hmm. on where you went into the environment, it it will vary quite a bit. Um, So some schools will come out where, you know, the federal relief dollars could make their budgets more or less stable. Others are still going to be in that red ink and really aren't going to be able to find a way out of it through federal relief alone, unfortunately. Um, that being said, a lot of schools have restructured their cost bases. They've made pretty substantial transformations uh, on the cost front that could give them some more opportunities uh, to make the dollars go farther than maybe they had in the spring. So a space to watch. The one thing I would also call out, though, is for you know publics, both community colleges and, and regional publics and systems, You know this doesn't do anything to address the state finance challenges uh, and the municipal finance challenges that affect a lot of community colleges as well. Um, And there's no additional money in this uh, in SURSA for those packages, hopefully maybe in a future one, Uh, but their need and that public support need is is not going to be solved overnight by this either, unfortunately. Mm -hmm.
1: And I am very eager to get your take on the likelihood of more relief funding in the future. But before I do, one last note on this, CERSA. I know you helped a lot of our higher ed partners navigate the CARES Act in 2020. Yeah. The guidance given from the ED was, was a bit confusing at times, yeah. came in fits and starts, was quite delayed. Based on your experience working with partners on the CARES Act, what advice would you give our listeners this time around as they prepare for receiving this this next pot of funding?
2: Yeah, you know, the first point that you raised, there was a lot of volatility in the policy space and in the definition space, and it took time for the department really to clarify. What they were talking about and why there was even litigation on, you know, for example, what students were eligible for the emergency financial mm. relief. Um, so there was a lot of uncertainty. My hope this time around is, is that the department can really rely on the work that they've done over the uh the with the previous CARES Act to make this more efficient on the the guidance. There's a little bit of a caveat here. We we're in the midst of a presidential transition, we we don't have a uh, fully confirmed Secretary of Education. We have an acting Secretary of Education right now with Secretary of resignation. We're going to have a new one coming in, but he still has to be confirmed in, in Dr. Miguel Cardona. So uh, there's a lot of uh, kind of flux in place, if you will, that could lead to some interpretations, particularly on student aid eligibility um, and some other kind of details out there. So just be prepared for that and, and understand that that's out there. So I think hopefully the dollars go out quicker this time around, but the guidance might not be there uh, as quickly as we'd like it to be. The second point, I, I think kind of the big lesson learned from CARES is to really kind of uh, try as much as we can to look forward instead of backward. I think what happened in the CARES period of time, which seems like decades ago, but the focus, if you recall, was room and board refunds, right? Everyone you know, had, mm-hmm. had to issue them when campus closed. And just talking to CFOs and presidents, it was like, we have no other choice really but to reimburse ourselves on the room and board refunds with these dollars. And even that wasn't enough. And so what ended up happening with schools that did that in some cases is that they didn't end up having the reserve or the, the financial uh, funds to then uh, make the investments that they needed to to reopen campus safely in the fall. Um, so they weren't able to like find the, the capital or the pool of money sometimes uh, to to put into testing and all of those other things that they needed to. So uh, the lesson learned from there is to try to be as forward-looking as possible. I know every financial circumstance is going to be different going into this, and there were schools that don't really have any other choice but to be retroactive in their use. But uh, being farsighted, I think, will help. And then the third one is really when it comes to that uh, emergency financial aid to students. I think the institutions that really did this right, got the money out quickly. They were very transparent about how they did it and why they did it. Um, Some schools kind of spent time you know, delayed the process of getting the, the aid out, weren't very transparent or were seen to have kind of played games with it, you know, not giving the direct cash payments or trying to, to work around other things or mm. conditioning on certain things. I think the lesson learned is, you know, this is uh, the equivalent of the the economic impact payments, those $600 checks for a lot of students that they're not eligible mm. to get if they're dependent of their parents. And so getting the money out quickly and fairly and as uh, as uh, transparently as possible is a real benefit here because there's reputational risk as well as just mission risk if if you delay and kind of uh, over-rationalize it. So three lessons that I, I would call out here for, for leaders going forward.
1: Let's, you and I, similarly look forward. Uh, yes, mm-hmm. while this was big headline news, this act has kind of fallen down in yep. the headlines given everything mm-hmm. else that's going on in Washington. And even as we talk to our higher ed partners it Yes, they're interested in this Relief Act, but they're also anxiously anticipating the inauguration, the installment of the new administration and and the new Congress. I'd love to get your take. I know that you're watching this space and some of the policy predictions that Mm -hmm. um, are, are occurring here. First, though, on the topic of relief funding, do we expect the new administration, the new Congress to pass another relief package in the near term future?
2: Yeah, you know, I think that there was some debate about what that would happen, but following the Georgia special elections, which is, you know, another big development that I think was kind of glossed over with everything that happened at the Capitol, unfortunately, on the sixth, you know, there is a a democratically controlled Congress now unified government for the first time in, in uh, you know, a decade, really, in some level. But the challenge with that is, is that those majorities are very slim. So uh, we'll talk about what that means for higher ed policy going forward. But on the stimulus front, there seems to be, you know, pretty good consensus. with the party that we need to do more, um, actually, as we are recording this podcast today, uh, the president-elect is going to announce his his stimulus package plan, and the word that his team is throwing around is trillions of dollars. So uh, it could be, you know, much bigger than what we've even seen before. Maybe care side, maybe even bigger, closer to hero size. Um, so. Again, Again, a lot of uncertainty about what that means and then what actually is going to be passable by Congress? Do they try to go uh, through a bipartisan approach, which would probably limit the the size of the package, to get Republican support in the Senate, or do they try to explore, you know, reconciliation, which will delay it, but maybe could go bigger on? Or there's some uncertainty around that. I'll spare the details and the walkiness of that, but know that I'm following it very closely. Um, but you know, the good news overall is I think you'll will see a stimulus package of some degree of size, and that higher education has enough bipartisan support, but it, it, particularly support from uh, the administration and the, the Democratic-controlled Congress to include additional provisions for them in the next round. To what extent are we talking about, you know, another uh, size package of $23 billion? Are we talking maybe, you know, 50 or closer to that $120 billion? I think is a big question, and. It, all of the kind of advocacy groups in higher ed right now are really focused on that conversation and making sure that Congress is aware of that need and and pushing them to go bigger here. So I'm very optimistic about it now. Um, But again, it's a space we'll have to watch very closely over the next few weeks and months
1: conversation then. And <laughs> I'm sure this is certainly welcome news to our partner institutions who yeah. just didn't expect the pandemic to still be as front of mind as it is and um, are, are reeling with not just the enrollment impacts and the auxiliaries impacts that you mentioned, but also now for those that have reopened, just the, the increased cost of testing as time goes yeah. on. So that's great news. What other reasons do higher education leaders have to be optimistic about the new administration? I guess, in other words, what are some of the new policies that might benefit the industry that we can expect or are, are somewhat likely to pass?
2: right well you know at a high level i think the, the 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 good news for for higher education leaders is that their their voice and their kind of perspective will be you know sought and valued um from the administration and from from congress more so than maybe in the last 4 years you know they'll have a seat at these tables um so and that's uh element the the policy environment is more favorable now that doesn't mean that they're going to get everything they want or their wish list but i think expect to be heard more so uh, is is a big improvement even upon uh you know the last 4 years for many uh institutions so high level there in terms of the specific you know, it really is up in the air. There's a lot of talk of what is possible out there. Uh, again, I think those slim democratic majorities are probably gonna limit that to more incremental versus that transformational change that I think a lot of the industry are looking for. Um, and I would expect the federal government's not going to really be able to address those root cause challenges, those existential threats that kind of keep our, our industry up at night, whether it's the you know affordability crisis, the, the equity crisis, or um, anything related to you know the, the cost growth institutions, those are probably not gonna be fully or robustly as addressed as we want to by the federal government. So the the challenge is on us to still solve. But in terms of particulars, I think definitely at the conversation is what happens with the future of federal financial aid. Uh, The uh, president-elect during his campaign proposed uh, doubling the Pell Grant, the maximum side of the award, and also expanding the eligibility. So the number of students who could theoretically access Pell um, as being a down payment to moving towards debt-free or even to free college. So we'll see how far that goes. It could potentially be wrapped up into a broader Omnibus uh, stimulus package or a uh, budget, but uh, worth watching. Um, another kind of thing that's getting a lot of attention is is the debt forgiveness or debt cancellation uh, points. You know, it it seems like the focus will be on Congress to really try and act here. Uh, it again, remains to be seen how much. You know, is it ten thousand dollars? Is it fifty thousand dollars? What are the conditions or who gets it? Uh, those are really political questions that will have to be sorted out if it's going to happen. Uh, but a space to watch. I, I think the thing though about debt cancellation is it's a, a Maybe a great benefit to our society and to the students and the equity considerations, but for institutions, it, it, it treats a symptom. It doesn't treat a root cause. Um, mm-hmm. So at that point, I think, you know, it, it does raise a lot more questions about higher education's affordability crisis than anything else. So uh, important to kind of keep in mind. Um, And, you know, outside of that, on the regulatory front, I expect the uh, uh, Biden uh, Education Department to really uh, crack down on for profits and some, uh, you know, career and technical providers um, and really thinking about where they could take the rule uh, and regulatory environment going forward to protect students. So uh, lots on the plate there for sure. uh, But you know that there's a lot of excitement. uh, But I also would be cautious and and caveat everything on the notion that Congress is still going to be pretty gridlocked, uh, even with a, a democratically unified government.
1: And and just to draw that out for our listeners without getting into too much of the the policy and the Mm -hmm. uh, organizational details, because there's such a slim Democratic majority, the Democratic caucus will need to appeal to the most moderate members of their caucus as well as the most liberal. And therefore, that will limit their ability to pass some of the the most liberal policies that I think got a lot of press attention during the um, 2020 Democratic primaries.
2: Yes. Yeah. And I think, you know, those big spending packages that would take to do free college, for example, the the added taxes that would come with that, I think are are one of those things that's likely not to be the priority and probably fall aside. But you could see the focus, you know, of a more moderate proposal, thinking about how do we get debt-free college, you know, and maybe focusing that on the two-year space instead of the four-year space. So you will see some prioritization. I think the biggest thing for the industry, though, is to try to stay united on that and not, you know, divide uh, and make sure the voice is maximized to ensure that aid is given into uh, you know both the the students importantly and the most importantly, but ensure that it's it's as equitably as distributed as possible.
1: Mm-hmm. Any other places I hate to ask? is this all sounds like great news for the most part for higher education institutions. Where should leaders moderate their expectations and and yeah. not expect the world or or for this new administration, new Congress to um, solve all of their big
2: problems? Right I think the important thing is to just think about the broader political and policy cli- uh, context right now you know we're facing simultaneous crises right now we have the pandemic we have the pandemic caused recession we have the social and racial injustice crisis to throw in another one we have climate change right so they they really add up and these are really thorny topics to tackle on that are going to take tremendous allocations of political and financial capital to solve now, that doesn't mean higher education is not a part of those conversations. I, I could argue that higher ed has a role to play in solving or addressing any one of those crises, but they're more of a means than an end in themselves. And so I think don't expect the you know, administration or Congress to go out of the way, saying we're going to support more money for you know, uh, tenure track faculty at institutions. They, they want to see ROI for their... For their dollars and they want those priorities to be aligned with uh, these broader strategic goals. So, so that does limit both the resources, but also more importantly, uh, limits the attention given to higher ed specific issues and needs. So uh, that would be the frame and, and you know, calibrating for, uh, for incremental over that transformational policy. The other thing I would say is, you know, this is an opportunity that is going to require a lot of work on our part, a lot of work on the, the, you know, higher ed leaders and and the the organizations, the collective organizations that represent the industry to really make sure that our voice is heard um, in the the chambers of power, right? Ensuring that, uh, you know, the value of higher education is there, that we reclaim the narrative that higher ed is a a public good, not a privatized commodity, um, and ensuring that there's an opportunity that the the value that higher ed provides drives a host of societal goods, whether that be Economic development, job growth, research and innovation—you name it. Um, so, positioning the, the the sector as well as individual institutions is going to be a big lift, um, but it's it's an important part of that work. So, overall, I would say that's the, the macro context, and then some of those more specific policies that skew towards institutions over students. The the government's going to always prioritize students over institutions. This is just an important caveat to remember: students, you know, vote; uh, their parents vote. Institutions don't. Uh, you know, they they have impacts. Uh, not to diminish that at all, but The political power is certainly on on the consumer, not on the supplier. Um, So that will also skew with the focus of the government and where the policies end up. That's
1: a really important point. I know that you and several of our other colleagues are are planning to continue to monitor this space Mm -hmm. and publish um, your analysis of what new proposals impact on the higher ed education industry will be. So lots for our partners and our listeners to be looking forward to in the coming weeks and months. But before we close, curious if you have advice for partners about how they could start preparing themselves now to advocate for their institutions Mm. and their students and position, put themselves in the best position to thrive under this new administration.
2: Great question. I think it really starts with, you know, what's your institutional identity? What's your mission? What is going to kind of come from that self-identification process? And then where does that fit into the, the broader political priorities that exist right now? I mentioned those crises, you know, whether it's the affordable, you know, the uh, climate change, for example, or uh, talking about the pandemic. What can you as a school do there to help? And how do you make that case to, to stakeholders? The other thing is I like, this is an opportunity to really empower your students and to empower your partners. Uh, I think oftentimes when you know higher education institutions act alone, they can sometimes be marginalized or you know excluded from the conversation with some members of Congress or uh, even in just the, the bureaucracy that's out there. But if you find partners in the private sector, private companies that you work with, or local employers, or uh, even state and local governments, you know, maximizing the voice through those networks that higher ed has so many of. I mean, the, the Rolodex of most presidents uh, of colleges and campuses is just tremendous, but really running at that, I think, is the best thing that you can start doing today in working on that connectivity. Um, so a lot out there, but again, I think that there are some steps that we can start today uh, that will ensure that we have a seat at the table and, and that uh, our voice is heard where we need it to be.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you, Jackson. I think that's a great place to end. Uh, This has been a very hopeful and energizing conversation. Um, Exciting to hear about new resources coming to our colleges and universities, as as well as some uh, policy proposals and decisions that could impact their lives for the better uh, in the the coming months. So we will certainly be excited to see more of your analysis and hear your thoughts in the policy space. But until then, uh, it's always a pleasure. And thank you for coming on the podcast today.
2: Thanks so much, Caitlin.
0: Thanks for listening. Join us next week when Sally Amoruso, EAB's chief partner officer, talks to Dr. William Tierney, the founding director of the Pullius Center for Higher Education at the University of Southern California. They're going to talk about Get Real, Dr. Tierney's new book about higher education. Until next week, thank you for listening to Office Hours with EAB.